Please open in your Bibles with me to John chapter 7. You can find it on page 892 in your pew Bibles, if you're using the black pew Bibles in front of you. Uh, Today in our passage, we're going to encounter Jesus at the Feast of Booths. This was a feast that celebrated God's faithfulness. And many of you may know that throughout the Jewish calendar, there are a number of routine, regular feasts that rehearse the different angles and, uh, and seasons and contours of redemptive history. And of all of the major uh, festal uh, gatherings of the people, uh, the Feast of Booths, was the most popular and one of the most joyous celebrations. They were commanded several times in Scripture to rejoice. There is an Israeli movie made about the Feast of Booths. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's, uh, it's called Ush Pizin. Uh, and it is a fascinating movie because it shows you through, through this modern setting in the Feast of Booths, this celebration of uh, joy, it captures the unique combination of joy and longing that would have been present at the feast. Joy, because God had blessed you, and longing, because you wanted even more of that blessing. You wanted to enter into the miraculous work of God and salvation and experience it at an even deeper level. So again, joy, anticipation, expectation at the Feast of Booths. But that's not what we find in John chapter 7. That's not the tenor of the feast that we are about to read. No, instead of joyful expectation, there's anxiety. The people there are unable to enter into the joyous provision of Christ in a full way because they're anxious, they're nervous, they are afraid of the religious leaders because the religious leaders are standing behind them, looking over their shoulder and frowning upon Jesus. And so I want you to listen to the story this morning with that in mind. There is dissonance in this passage. There's an a great message of joy that Jesus is offering to the people, but he's speaking this great message of joy into a culture of religious, spiritual anxiety during a festival of joy. So we should pay attention to the way that John sets up the narrative to bring out that dissonance, but listen carefully because through the dissonance, there is actually hope. Because Jesus doesn't endorse the religious culture that prevents people from believing in him. In fact, he confronts it. And then he transcends it. And he invites people to believe in him, to come to him directly, and to receive everlasting spiritual satisfaction. And so, if you, especially if you have had an an anxiety-producing encounter in church... I want you to listen to this message and hear Jesus inviting you to come to him for joy. He's inviting you to rediscover joy in himself through the Holy Spirit. And he offers you now a spiritual sustenance that will endure no matter what your circumstances are. This is a powerful message for every single one of us this morning. And so let's hear God's word together as we hear about Jesus at the Feast of Booths. This is John 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. 
he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast or are not yet going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up 
and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Brothers and sisters, thus far in the reading of God's holy word, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, speak to us today from your word and minister to us through the power of the Spirit who lives within us and gives us spiritual renewal and refreshment. We long to be with you. and We long to sense your presence and to know your voice. So please be with us and confirm in our hearts this fantastic invitation of joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So let's talk a little bit about the Feast of Booths. For this passage to really have power, we need to understand what the people were going through during that great week. In Leviticus 23, in the Old Testament, we first hear about the Feast of Booths when God tells the Israelites that for uh, every single year that they're in the Promised Land, they are going to need to spend one week of that year in the chosen place of the Lord, living in booths or, or these temporary dwellings made out of wood so that they could reenact God's covenant faithfulness to them. He brought them out of slavery uh, from Egypt and provided for them while they were wandering in the wilderness. And so this feast would recollect their time of wandering and God's great provision. And the feast happened at a strategic time in the calendar year. It was just after the produce harvest and just before the drought season began. And so all throughout the festival, the theme of water was very much on their minds because God provided water from the rock when the people were in the wilderness and they were thirsty. God provided rain for all of the produce that they were currently enjoying. And then coming into the dry season, they were looking to God to provide again. This was a joyful week. It was celebrating God's great provision during dry times, dry seasons 
seasons, dry places. And so over time, as the festival ceremonies developed, this theme of water got incorporated into the proceedings of the festival. So every day of the festival, once a day, the priests would take a, a pitcher and would carry water from the pool of Siloam, which was just outside of the city walls. So he would go and fill up this pitcher of water and would take it all the way through town with the, the crowd going along with them and celebrating. And he would take it all the way to the temple. And then he would pour the water out over the temple while the people gathered around and sang these psalms of praise that we have in the Old Testament. Uh, Who is like our God? Our God is a God of salvation. And then on the seventh day, the priest and the people would go through this water ritual seven times over, pouring out an abundance of water over the altar of God, signifying God's abundant blessing. Every drop of water proclaimed to the people, God has taken care of us in the past. He is taking care of us now, and we trust that he will take care of us in the future. As they were going through these water ceremonies throughout the week, there were also messianic overtones to all of their rituals. Because in the prophets, the spiritual renewal that was ushered in by the Messiah is signified by an abundance of water. We might think of Joel chapter 3, 18, and in that day a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. Or Ezekiel chapter 47, where a river flows from the temple and eventually spreads out to cover the entire land of Israel. And so this was their spiritual longing during this great feast. Uh, They were praying, God, send us your Messiah. Not just provide for us physical water, but send your Messiah, pour out spiritual blessing upon us like an overflowing, overwhelming river to wash away our guilt, wash away our shame, bring us into your everlasting presence. And so that is what the Feast of Booths was about. It was celebrating and longing for God's abundant, overwhelming provision in the midst of physical and spiritual wasteland. It was a time for joyful expectation. At least that's what it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be that kind of time where the people were freely worshiping God and freely expecting God's salvation to be poured out upon them. But when we listen to the feast in John chapter 7, it's filled with a nervous energy. There's a confused anxiety that's surrounding Jesus. The people are confounded by him. The crowd can't decide what they think about the Messiah. There are a number of popular opinions that we hear about in these verses. Is the Messiah, the Christ, somehow different from the prophet that Moses promised? Will he perform many signs? Will we know where he came from? Can he even come from Galilee? The crowd can't decide. And then the crowd can't make up their mind what to think about Jesus himself. He's a good man. No, he's deceiving the people. He's leading them astray. He's the prophet. No, he's got a demon. He's the Christ. We should arrest him. The people, like we hear in the text, they're divided about Jesus. But then to make matters worse, the crowd couldn't talk about it. 
They, they have high spiritual hopes during this week, and they want to discuss Jesus' teaching so that they can understand what he's offering, but fear of the religious leaders hangs over them like this oppressive fog. They can't speak openly about it. The religious leaders were going through the crowds looking for Jesus, saying, where is he? Where is this man? And so like we hear about in verse 13, for fear of the Jews, that's the religious leaders of the time, that's what John's saying there, for fear of the religious leaders, no one spoke openly about him. That's a tragedy. Instead of spiritually thirsty pilgrims running to their savior, there was only much muttering about him. Imagine a middle school lunchroom. That might be a terrifying memory for some of you. Uh, put yourself in a middle school lunchroom and there's a rumor going around. And all the kids want to talk about it. But the teachers are roaming the aisles to kind of keep it quiet. And so what one kid does is kind of leans over and, and whispers something. And another friend leans back to here. But the entire time they're scanning the room to make sure that they don't get caught. That's what I mean by an anxious energy. And again, it's sad of all of the times to be discussing salvation. The offer of God to give rich spiritual fulfillment, it was this festival and all of the religious leaders should have been leading the way so that the people could find the salvation that they longed for. Well, Jesus confronts this spiritual anxiety, this religious anxiety. He speaks openly, like the people said. They're afraid to, but he's not. He speaks openly. He challenges the religious leaders. He calls them out for their lack of integrity. He teaches them the pure, true word of God. And then on the last day of the feast... During the time when they would have been going back and forth from the pool to the temple seven times over, pouring out pitcher and pitcher of water, Jesus stands up in their midst and shouts, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, Jesus is telling the crowds, come and get what you came here for. Come and get the thing that you long for in all of these uh, rituals, all of your longings. The answer to them is here. Jesus is the new rock who spews forth water for thirsty people. He is the new temple that allows water to rush into the people, spiritual water for spiritually thirsty people. Jesus fulfills all of their joyful expectation. Now, how can they be sure about this? How can they trust that Jesus can do what he's saying in these verses? Well, he's been telling them all week long. In all of his teaching, he's been telling them why he can provide. He has access to God. In all of their debates with Jesus, there are these three main questions that the people, the religious leaders, are posing to Jesus. Where did you get this teaching? That's verse 15. Where did you come from? That's verse 27. And then where are you going? That's verse 35. And Jesus answers each question by highlighting his relationship to God. Where did I get this teaching? God gave it to me. Where did I come from? Well, God sent me. Where am I going? I'm going back to God. 
As we've seen from the very beginning of John's gospel, Jesus has access to God. And then when we believe in Jesus, he gives us access to God through the Holy Spirit also. It's an amazing promise that should bring us a lot of joy. Just think about it, all of your spiritual longing. Every single one of you have this deep down desire to know and enjoy God. And that desire is met in Jesus Christ. He promises to give you his Holy Spirit. And so there is an amazing invitation here in this text. But it also comes with a warning. Again, there is dissonance in this passage. It's a message of joy spoken within a culture of religious anxiety during a festival of joy. One of these things is not like the others. And so John sets it up that way so that we would see the problem here. Here's the problem. Religious institutions block people from Jesus when they become self-promoting or self-protecting. And Jesus is not happy with it. He confronts the culture that would block people from him from self-promoting or self-protecting behavior. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus' brothers pressure him to go to the feast so that he can gain a greater following. They're practically saying, look, if you want to be famous, we know how to help you. Just go do some of these miracles at the most popular feast of the year. That'll get you the following that you want. But John immediately gives us insight into their hearts. They didn't even believe in him. They might have known that he could do powerful things, but they weren't on board with his messianic mission. They weren't hungry for people to follow Jesus so that they could be saved. They just wanted some worldly acclaim, and Jesus rebukes them for it. He says, look, you can go to the feast whenever you want because the people don't hate you because you don't care about God's will and you don't proclaim God's message. And then listen to verse 18. The religious leaders are criticizing Jesus' teaching because he's not following their rules. He's not credentialed by their leaders. That's what it means for him to not have, uh, have that sort of training that they're talking about. He hasn't been taught. And so then he says in verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. He calls them out. He says that they were thirsty for their own glory. They weren't thirsty for God's glory. Instead of promoting Jesus, they were promoting themselves. And when they were threatened, when they were called out on that, they worked to protect their own power. Again, Jesus is threatening their authority here. He is undermining them, saying that they don't know God that they are full of falsehood, that they don't follow the law of Moses. He accuses them of applying the law of Moses selectively to protect themselves. And so they react by trying to silence him. They keep the crowds quiet. They don't let, want anybody to be talking about him openly. They try to arrest him so that they can maintain their own status. And, and then listen to what happens when it doesn't work out. Then they start to make fun of everyone who is not along with their schemes. They throw the people under the bus. Verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, the guards who failed to uh, bring Jesus because they were actually impressed by him. No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law, they're accursed. It's so callous. 
They despised the people for not knowing the law when it was their job to teach the people the law. These were the spiritual teachers of Israel, and yet when the crowds get excited about Jesus, the religious leaders mock the crowds to maintain their sense of superiority. Well, Jesus is not pleased with this kind of behavior. And so here's what he has to say to them or to any other religious leader that practices any kind of self-promoting or self-protecting behavior. He says, your works are evil and you don't care about doing God's will. Verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Their resistance to Christ's message showed that they did not actually care about doing God's will. And then in verse 7, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. And so here they are resisting godly rebuke which shows that their works are evil. Their hearts were set against God. And that's a hard word, but it is a really necessary word to religious leaders. Self-promoting and self-protecting spiritual leadership harms God's people. It creates a culture of spiritual anxiety, just like we see at the feast in John chapter 7. And, and, and when we pause to think about it, we can see why. If a church exists to prop up one person or one group, then everyone around has to be both perfect and obedient. You can't have imperfect people running around and ruining the image of the church or the leader, and you can't have curious people asking questions and undermining the leadership. And so you, you have this pressure, and as soon as you do either of those things, either fail or start to raise questions, then you are the problem. Now, we see that kind of toxic leadership out in the world. And you, you read about it in the news, and it's tragic wherever it happens, but I think it is far, far more tragic when it happens within the church, uh, because it, here's what happens. Uh, the people, in order to maintain that posture of authority and this, uh, this sense of perfection, they use the glorious, gracious message of Jesus Christ to simply get people to behave. And then everything about the faith, gets tinged with that sort of spiritual, religious anxiety. God does not like that. See, Christianity should not make you nervous. Christianity shouldn't make you nervous. Now, sure, there's a cost to discipleship, and we see that even in the text. Nicodemus raises his voice just to even suggest that Jesus might have a fair trial. He's not saying anything crazy, He's just saying, doesn't our, doesn't our law, doesn't our tradition require that there's a fair trial for this man? And even when he raises his voice in that small way, he gets mocked for it. So, of course, there's going to be the cost of discipleship. And the cost of discipleship, when we follow Jesus, it can come with a sense of dread or a sense of fear. But that is very different from spiritual anxiety. A fear of being told by a religious leader that you are spiritually defective because you fail to join them in their mission of self-promotion or self-protection. Christianity should not make you nervous. And therefore, church should not make you nervous. Church should be a freeing place 
for you to go. And now, if you're stuck in sin, if you're like knowingly sinning and you refuse to repent, then likely you will be nervous coming to church because the Spirit is going to convict you. But conviction of sin is not the same thing as anxiety. Uh, the spiritual anxiety that we're talking about. And when leaders create a culture of spiritual anxiety by making church about them or by making all sorts of extra rules that you have to follow and never question, it harms believers. It makes people read the Bible out of fear of being ashamed Uh, or giving financially or volunteering of time out of a a sense of compulsion and not willing generosity and gratitude. In short, it makes people do the things that Christians do, but out of fear or shame or, or guilt or the desire to fit in. And if they ever leave that institution, they tend to leave Christianity altogether. A culture of spiritual anxiety harms God's people, and God doesn't like it. He didn't like it in John chapter 7, and he doesn't like it now. And so for those of us in spiritual leadership here, we should, we should listen. Uh, brothers, uh, elders at Christ Church of Arlington, we need to make sure Uh, that we are listening to the warning of the text. We need to ask ourselves, are we proclaiming only Christ and his rule? And are we welcoming fellow sinners without judgment Uh, and humbly because we know that we too are broken? Or are we setting up an atmosphere of spiritual anxiety? See, our leadership at this church must follow Jesus's leadership. He worked for God's own glory, not his own. And he didn't protect himself. In fact, he gave himself up for us. That's the kind of leadership that pleases God. And so uh, for Christ Church of Arlington elders, we need to make sure that we are leading like that. And for the congregation of Christ Church, there's also a warning for you too. Heed the warning. If we're honest, uh, many of us, for for many of us here, this probably isn't going to be the last church that you ever attend. Life may take you somewhere else, and so at some point in time, you will probably be looking for another church. So remember this teaching as you are looking for that other church. Be careful. Don't get caught up in a church culture that makes you nervous. Don't get caught up in a church culture that fosters this spiritual sense of anxiety. Be aware of self-promoting or self-protecting leadership. Yes, absolutely. Find a place where there's good doctrine, solid gospel teaching, but also make sure that the leaders follow Jesus and follow after Jesus's leadership because Jesus's leadership actually brings freedom. It is an absolute joy to follow Christ. And so then that brings us to the invitation of this text. Again, there's a warning, but, but here's the invitation. We're invited to find joy in Jesus. Find joy in Christ. Jesus gives you the Holy Spirit. He has been glorified. Again, Jesus was saying this is a future thing. But now for us, it's a past thing. Jesus has been glorified. The Spirit has been poured out upon the church. And so you have access to the Holy Spirit now, a river of flowing water deep within your heart. And so just go back to everything that the Feast of Booths represented. God took care of the people. 
He took care of the people even in desert places, even in times of drought. When they were thirsty, he gave them water. And so when you're thirsty, God will give you water too, even if it feels like you're in a time of discouragement or a place of desolation. When you're thirsty, he gives you what you need. He gives you the spiritual water of the Holy Spirit, this agent of eternal life who lives within you. And then let's remember 2 Corinthians 3.17 that talks about the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's freedom from the Spirit, freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, freedom from man-made burdens and spiritual anxiety. And compared to the restrictive religious culture of the time, Jesus' offer is amazing. It's like stepping out of a pair of old, thick, starched denim jeans and stepping into a brand new pair of stretchy jeans. It's an amazing experience. It feels great. It's freeing. That's what Christianity offers to your soul. So if you are spiritually thirsty, come to Jesus and be freed. Be satisfied and rejoice. Rejoice in Christ. That's the invitation for us. And so I want to ask us this morning, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot this week. Do we do that? Do I, do you, on a regular basis, rejoice in Christ? Do you live joyfully because of the Holy Spirit? Do you choose joy instead of giving in to grumpiness or fear? In 2016, uh, it was Major League Baseball's opening day, and Bryce Harper showed up to the first game of the season wearing a hat. It was a white hat that said, make baseball fun again. He felt that the MLB had gotten too stuffy, too self-promoting, too self-protecting, and it wasn't fun to play a game anymore. Make baseball fun again. So if you're struggling with joy in the spirit, I'm tempted to tell you, make Christianity fun again. But that's not true, because Christianity already is fun. We don't need to make it fun. It already is. Jesus gives you access to God who is supremely enjoyable. Now, it's not fun like sort of uh, maybe like preschool playground antics or class clown stuff, always just being goofy all the time. No, it's actually much better than that. It's like an evening with your best friend who knows you so well, knows everything that you enjoy, knows how to give you a great time always knows how to make you laugh and can always encourage you and pick you up when you're feeling down. That is the kind of fun that Christianity offers to you. And so I think that the message of John chapter 7 for us at this church is this. Let Christianity be fun again. Let Christianity be fun again. Rediscover joy in Christ through his word and through his people. Let the Bible be fun again. Throughout the scriptures, there is an explicit connection between God's spirit, God's word, and spiritual renewal. We could look at Nehemiah chapter 9 to see that. He's recounting the gracious, redemptive deeds of God. And he talks about the wilderness season, and he says, You gave your good spirit to instruct them and gave them water for their thirst. Spirit, word, 
and water all in one or two verses. And so when Jesus says in verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, he probably had at least this passage in mind. This connection between the Spirit and your spiritual renewal and God's Word. The Spirit refreshes us through the Bible. And I know many of us read the Bible. Uh, This is a a very Bible-reading congregation, and that is fantastic. But I fear that many of us read the Bible with a sense of anxiety. Uh, more to try and either keep up appearances or to try and check some sort of box or out of this suspicion that somehow we are just not doing it good enough. And so we ask ourselves, am I reading enough? Will Will I disappoint the elders or disappoint my friends if I'm not reading the Bible? Oh no, I'm behind on my Bible reading plan. Or even even worse, I never had a Bible reading plan this year. And so if that's you, here's my encouragement. Try to recapture the pleasure of Scripture. Recapture the pleasure of reading God's Word. Maybe try out a new translation. Uh, There are several great translations out there. Try one out. Get some good coffee Set up a cozy space where you can settle down. Make sure that it's an enjoyable experience because you are about to hear from God. So again, recapture the pleasure of reading scripture. And if you don't read the Bible on a regular basis, then why not start? Why not start doing something wonderful that'll bless your soul, that'll encourage you? So start now with that same goal in mind. If you started a Bible reading plan back in January and and you're you're kind of petering out on it, you know, there's not much gas left in the tank, then I would just say stop and pick a new one. There's no reason that you have to finish that particular one thing. Just read scripture and enjoy it. Or maybe what you do is you take the rest of November and you, you dedicate yourself to only reading absolutely delightful passages of Scripture. Books like Ruth or Philippians or Psalm 100 or even the Song of Songs. Let the Bible be fun again. Because the, the Spirit uses Scripture to encourage and refresh you. He uses Scripture to quench your thirst. And then let the church be fun again. Let the church be fun again. This feast that we hear about, it was a gathered assembly of the saints who came together to celebrate God's redemptive provision. And they did it with great joy. And that's what church is every single week. Every week we gather together as the saints to celebrate God's redemptive provision. He gives us Christ. He gives us the Holy Spirit. Our worship can be joyful. It might sound heretical to some people to say, let, let church be fun again. And I'm not saying that it won't be solemn or, or serious or important, but it can also be fun. We can enjoy worshiping God together. And that's actually why we have food outside after the service, because we want to keep the feast going. And so let church be fun again. Come on Sundays with a sense of joyful expectation, and then keep that joyful celebration going throughout the day. Open up your homes, eat food together, rejoice, keep the feast, because Jesus is in our midst. And he brings the Spirit with him wherever he goes. And this Holy Spirit, this Spirit doesn't whisper in your ear saying, you know, you're not really trying that hard. You're not really trying hard enough. You're about to mess up. Watch out because we're watching you. No, 
This spirit of God only whispers the truth into your heart saying that you are beloved. You are holy in Christ. You are forgiven. And so rejoice in Christ. Rejoice in Christ this week and drink deeply of him and let the spirit overflow the banks of your heart with his overwhelming joy. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for this message of salvation. How great is your word and how great is your spirit. And I pray that now, even as we finish the service, you would be ministering to us deep joy. Uh, For those who have been discouraged or hurt, I pray for healing. And I pray for a resurrection of joy within all of our spirits. There's enough in the news these days to always keep us discouraged and grumpy. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us through the power of the Spirit to choose life, to choose joy, and to choose happiness in you. Confirm your great word to us, we pray, and lift up our hearts as we give them to you in faith. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.